welcome this morning. And um, if you want to, you can go ahead and jot down on your bulletin or go ahead and mark your spots. We're going to be in two places this morning. We're going to start out in Galatians chapter 5. And then we will go from Galatians chapter 5 to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And so, <clears throat> so last Wednesday started the season of Lent per the kind of the church calendar, historical calendar of the church. And, and we kind of talked about a lot last week about what the season of Lent is about. And really what the season of Lent is about is it is about uh, coming into this element where we understand that worshiping God is about denying ourselves. We talked about that last week when we talked about more, that I was giving more. We were called to give more of ourselves to God and give God more of who we are and take in more of who He is because He's the only true thing that can satisfy, the only true thing that can sustain us. And so what Lynn is about is it's about this attitude of self-denial. It's about this attitude of personal reflection and repentance and acknowledging our need for God. Okay, so we're in this time right now uh, in the season of Lent that is 46 days total, not counting Sundays, it's 40, which is kind of more of how it goes about 40 days, and kind of a reflection of Jesus' time in the desert, uh, the children of Israel's time in the wilderness, those type of things. And so what we're, we're seeing is we're seeing this idea of self-denial. So that's what we talked about last week. We talked about denying ourselves, which is not natural for us, okay? We are naturally selfish people. Okay, if you ever want a, a lesson on the uh, doctrine of human depravity, uh, have kids, and you'll learn, and for you who have kids, you know this, how selfish we are born. We are born very selfish, toddlers, infants, we, we want what we want. The first words they usually learn are no or mine or things like that. And so we are inherently selfish by our birth. Our flesh, our, our nature is a selfish nature. And I know you're thinking in your mind, well, no, I'm not. Yeah, we are. We are. We are all, and we talk about it on Sunday nights a few times, whenever we're not uh, being led by God, uh, when we're not delighting in God and, and the things that we're doing are for God and we're doing things for ourselves, uh, all roads lead back to me. All, everything's going to lead back to how it makes me feel, how it makes me uh, function, how it, how, it how it makes me as an individual prosper. And so... What we started talking about last week is in this idea of more in the, the season of Lent as we enter into this just act of self-denial, just putting ourselves to death, uh, putting our own desires to death. And we talked about last week when Jesus said, he said that they must deny himself, that a man before he follows me must deny himself. Because we have to understand our need for the Lord. We have to understand our need for God and find ourselves, uh, because otherwise we'll find ourselves falling victim to that instinct. Okay? Because all roads lead back to us. Matt Chandler said this in a quote. Uh, he said that the more you make this world about you, the more miserable you will be. I love it because it's just straightforward. I mean, there's not much uh, nuance to that. The more we make this life, the more we make our worship, the more we make our actions about us, the more miserable we will be. Because like I said, all roads lead back to me. And when it comes to me, I'm going to realize how faulty I am, how imperfect I am, how much I fail, how, mu how many mistakes I make, how I can't live up to the expectations I set for myself or maybe I think other people set for me. And so then I step into this in my own way and then I'm disappointed and I'm I, and I fail because I've made my life, I've made my work, I've made everything about me, and it constantly leads back to disappointment. And so what God is calling us to, He's calling us away from ourselves, calling us to deny ourselves, to find true satisfaction, to find true fulfillment in the things that He has for us, and that can only come from denying ourselves and following Him and making my life about Him 
First off, we talked about last week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So more of Him, making my life more about Him. And then this week, we're going to talk about the second half of what the Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament. sums up the law is the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Self-denial. We require self-denial to love someone else as yourself, right? And so this morning, that's what we're going to be talking about. And so last week, we talked about loving God being the foundational desire of our lives. That if it is not, we are lost and wandering sinners, feasting on lesser things and grasping for satisfaction that, will never, that we will never find separate from God. Okay, if we are desiring and feasting on things other than God, we are feasting and desiring lesser things that will not satisfy or provide for us. And so this morning we are going to talk about loving our neighbor. This is the natural next step that comes from a true place of faith in Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this, Next to the blessed sacrament, or taking in Christ and delighting in Christ, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. God has put this before us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this from his lips. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I say that not saying that that's easy because Jesus also said this sums up the whole law. And so to love your neighbor as yourself is the most, one of the most difficult things we will do. But that is what God calls us to in our pursuit of holiness and righteousness is to love your neighbor as yourself. Putting that on the same level as loving God. Now obviously we have to love God to know the motivation for loving our neighbor. That's why last week we started with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because otherwise loving your neighbor leads back to you. Okay, and so when we understand God's love for us, understand, and remember the love that we're talking about, this more of love is this agape love, willful, purposeful, intentional love. Not an emotional love, not, a, uh, not a, a just relational love, but an intentional love. Just giving of oneself for the other and delighting in the object of its love, okay? That agape love is what we talk about in Matthew 22, 39 through 40. It's where Jesus speaks this. He says, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, talking about love God and love your neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. And so that's heavy. That's weighty, right? That's weighty to think about that. But that's what God calls us to. And He calls us to that not in our own strength, but in His strength the power of the Spirit in us. And so He calls us to that. And so as believers this morning, I want to talk about three things, um, kind of how we did last week, why we should agape our neighbor, who is our neighbor, and then how we agape or how we love our neighbor. And so the first thing this morning, why we agape our neighbor, and there's no flashiness to this, but why we do it is because God commands it. We love our neighbor because God commands us to love our neighbor in the same way that He commands us to love and delight in Him. He calls us to love our neighbor. And in, in the book of Galatians here, in uh, Galatians 5.14, I'm going to read this to you really quick. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and so he's speaking this to know, understand the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written to a people who are being drawn back into very legalistic mindsets. Okay, they're having these Jews that are coming in and they're telling them that you people are calling yourselves Christians because you follow Christ, but the law says you have to be circumcised. And so uh, these people are coming in, they're telling the church of Galatia, you have to be circumcised to be Christians. You have to do these ceremonial religious activities to be believers. And so Paul is writing to them here refuting that, telling them the basis of the law, basis of what God says. And Paul is telling them ceremonies and practices of the law fall far below the outpouring of Christian love, fall far below agape love. He's telling them these religious ceremonies of the law 
fall way below what God has called us to in loving our neighbors. Because what we see in the Bible is we see several times in the Bible where it seems as if Jesus was breaking the law. When we know he wasn't, but what he was showing is that the law is not supersede what God has called us to, and that the law actually calls us to these things, but they were misinterpreting them. And one time in Mark 2, 23, uh, Jesus encourages disciples to pluck corn on the Sabbath. Okay, so they're breaking the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath, but they were hungry. God was showing love. Jesus was showing love to them. Pick some food to eat. And uh, in, in uh, Mark 3, verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus heal on the Sabbath. This would have been working on the Sabbath per the law, would have been breaking the law. But what Jesus says is he says that the love supersedes those things, that this man is in need. I see a need. And so it supersedes what the law says, not to break it, but to perfect it. That's what the law is intended to do. The law is intended to lead us to delighting and loving God. And the law is intended to lead us to loving and delighting in our neighbor. Okay? And so he calls us to that. And then just to read Galatians 13 through 15 so we get the whole deal. As the freedom that we have in God, what he calls us to. He says, um, you are called for you in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for selfishness, for myself." Self-interest. He says, do not, do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, agape, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So he's called us to this attitude of, and, and our freedom as, as Christians to live in this freedom and use that freedom to love the people around us. Not intending to devour each other, not intending to tear each other apart based on our differences or our disagreements, but he says to love each other, purposely to love each other. And so not only do we love why we love agape or neighbor because God commands it, but also because it facilitates unity and it creates opportunity. It facilitates unity and creates opportunity. Christian love is the adhesive that connects the church and it invites the lost into saving faith. When we love each other adequately, people want to be a part of that. Okay? People want, to, want that love. Everybody's striving and grasping for acceptance and love and, and, and purpose and direction. And when the church is unified, when we function as a unified body, people want that. People want to be a part of that. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Jesus saying this in John 17, 20 through 23, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those, this is Jesus' prayer for the church. He's praying to God for this church. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe me, through their word, that they may all be one. This is his prayer for the church. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are one. And I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Our love, agape love for each other, is, is unbelievably necessary in our evangelism in reaching the world around us. Because Jesus says, as we are one, they will see the glory of God and know that they are loved because we love. Because we care for each other. Because we're concerned. Remember, agape, willful, intentional delight. 
And so he's called us to have that in our neighbor. And so not only is it an opportunity for the lost to invite the lost into saving faith, but it also, it connects the church. In Joshua 6, a very, really familiar story as Joshua is taken over the mantle from Moses and to go into the promised land, uh, God tells them, gives them these very specific instructions to conquer the, uh, Jericho, to conquer this great city with these massive walls. And, and he lays out these very specific plans. He says, for the next six days, you'll march around the city one time. On the seventh day, you'll march around it seven times. And after that seventh time, you'll let out a shout. All in, and you'll play trumpet. There'll be seven trumpets and seven priests and all these things that he lays out. Every single person in the nation of Israel had to be doing these things. They had to be united. They had to be together. They had to be functioning in the obedience of God together to accomplish the task that they had. And so they were united in their orders and they were united in the results. And so for us as a church, as a body, a local body, but even as a global body, that we have to be united we have to be united in our purpose. We have to be united in what we want to accomplish. Philippians 1, 27 through 28 says this about church unity. He says, I may hear of you. This is Paul speaking, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. So he says that as we function as a church, that we would not be afraid of opposition, that we would not be afraid of hardships, that we would not be afraid or held back by the struggles that come against us as a church, but because we stand firm side by side in unity, one mind, one spirit, moving in the direction God's called us to, that we are not afraid. And that this is a sign that in our unity, it is a sign to our enemy, whether that's a physical enemy or a spiritual enemy, that it's a sign to our enemy of their destruction and of our salvation. That because of what God's done for us, we can walk confidently and boldly into every battle because we are unified. But when that unity is broken, we are vulnerable to the enemy. When our unity as a church is broken, there is vulnerability for the enemy to attack. 1 John 4, 30-31, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot Listen to this, that if you cannot love your brother, do not love your brother who you have seen, you cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so this is talking about the faith family, the church. He says, you cannot say you love God and hate the body. You can't do it. You can't do it. He's saying, and I love that he says that he says, you can't even love who you've seen who you've interacted with, how can you love a God who you have not seen? He's called us to love the church, love each other, love the, this body of believers who is not perfect, who is faulty, who make mistakes, and who potentially may hurt, hurt each other. But he calls us to love each other in that, that willful, purposeful, intentional love. And we'll talk about how we navigate that when we get into the how. But that's what he's called us to. It's why we do it. And so next, we're going to talk about who is our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? But what we'll see as we move through this is it's not so much who is my neighbor, who is the one, that I, who is the one that's supposed to receive, but it's who is the neighbor. 
who is the neighbor. And we'll see this in, uh, if you can turn your Bible to Luke chapter 10, a really famous, well-known story, uh, really answering the question of who is my neighbor, but more so communicating who is the neighbor. And that's a big difference. And we'll see that as we start to read this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 25, and I'm going to read down to verse 37. So stay with me as we read through this here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, talking to the lawyer, testing Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, and he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And when he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when, you, when I come back. Which of these three, this is Jesus asking the lawyer now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And to the man who fell among the robbers... And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So I hope that you can see from this story that as Jesus wraps to the end of it, that we see that the question isn't so much about who is my neighbor, but who was a neighbor. Okay, it's not so much about looking for who the neighbor is, who is the person in need in the story, but it's saying who is being neighborly. And I think there's a big difference in how we approach that question. Okay, there's a big difference in how we approach that question, uh, but that it's this idea of not receiving, but of giving. That it's not just re that it's not about receiving, sitting around to receive, but it's about giving. It's about giving, and because you see that in the question that the that the lawyer asks, he says, "How do I inherit eternal life?" You see, from the very beginning, his intentions was to see how can I gain from this. He's asking the question, how can I gain from this? And then he asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? Make this more specific. Now, granted, he was testing Jesus, but he's also in his mind trying to figure out who is this that I need to, be, uh, that, to do this to, to gain something. He's trying to figure out how can I benefit from this from to gain eternal life. So church, as we try to figure out who is our neighbor, the question and the thing that we have to, the, the, the statement we have to make to ourselves is our motive toward our neighbor can't be about what we are gaining from it. It cannot be about what we are gaining from it. An atheistic argument against Christianity, and I, and I don't think it's a terrible argument to be honest, and I think sometimes we need to hear these things out, but a, a very common atheistic argument against Christians is if you think you have to earn your way to heaven or earn God's love or earn God's respect or earn God's merit, then in every good thing you do, you are actually operating from a place of self-interest, right? Right? If we're doing for people to gain something from God, then everything we do for people is really just for me. 
It's for what I can gain from it. It's in my self-interest. It's to, to benefit me. Even though someone else is getting something, the intentions behind it is for my own self-interest. That's not what God's called us to. Because we also know, because we know that by faith we are saved, not by my merits, not by my works. But as we, if we function in that capacity where we're trying to aim God's merit and trust by what we do, then really everything we do for God is based. And even think about it in a church context. If we're coming to church just to please God, then we're not, we're not, that's not giving Him anything. That's not giving of ourselves to Him. That's not delighting Him. We, we talked about that last week. That we're operating from a place of self-interest. It's just how can I gain from it? How can I get from it? You know, churches have created a consumer culture, and that's what that idea is about. It's about consumption, even in loving our neighbor and doing a physical act of love. If that act of love is in my own self-interest to make me feel better or to make me feel like I've earned something, then it's not in true godly-driven love. That's not what he's called us to. And so let's, let's see these characters here this morning really quick. We see the priest. This is, this is the, the priest and the Levite are the religious elite. These are the guys, you know, in this road from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem would have been where the temple was. And so this priest is coming from the temple, probably just had a ceremony or some type of service where he's consecrated something or offered forgiveness for sins or something like that. And so we see the priest here. And what does it say? It says he just walks by. And then the Levite right under that, he would have been pretty high-ranking official also, uh, he, he actually walks to the other side. And then we see the Samaritan. And, and I know we've talked about this on and on uh, before, but there's a very significance. There's a significance to the fact that Jesus uses a Samaritan to tell the story. Okay? Because in this time, as they would have heard the law that would have said that uh, love your neighbor as yourself, Jews would have, their idea of neighbor would have been another Jew. A Pharisee's neighbor would have been another Pharisee. Okay? And so in this story, Jesus uses to communicate a neighbor that the neighbor is the other end of the spectrum. It was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, hated each other, almost to the point of dehumanizing each other. I was listening to something this week that said during the Passover that Samaritans would actually catapult dead pigs into areas of worship because, you know, the, in the law, the pork was a, a, a dirty meat. And so they would do this just out of ugliness. And then the Jews would say the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. They, I mean, they hated each other, absolutely hated each other. And because they, are, they, they dehumanize each other, it makes it easier to not love, right? It makes it easier to not love. You know, in, in, in the law, it says that if you touch someone who's dying, then it makes you dirty and you have to be clean. You know, that, that may be one reason why the priest just walked by because of the old law. I said, well, that, if that guy's dying and I touch him, I'm dirty. I'll have to go back to the temple and get cleaned up, cleaned of the filthiness. So I'm just going to pass by. You know, you see these things where we dehumanize and we, de we push people down uh, it's very easy to not love. But what Jesus is communicating is that our neighbor is anyone in reach. Anyone in reach of us. Anyone in our circles. Anyone around us. And that loving our neighbor should affect the way. If we are truly loving, truly considering every person within my reach as my neighbor, whether they agree with me, whether they, 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 they offer me anything, they are my neighbor. And as we approach people and understanding that human beings are made in the image of God, 
Okay, human beings are created in the image of God. Nothing else in this entire world is created in the image of God. Not animals, not plants, nothing. We have actually been given dominion over those things. We have souls. We are created in the image of God, and God has called us to love each other. Love those people, regardless of whether they agree with you or not. Love them with an intentional, purposeful love, and understand that they are worthy because just because they are made in the image of God, if nothing else. We can't dehumanize people and see them as any less than that. Because, listen, the thing is, is as we love our neighbors and as we approach that, it should affect the way we approach humanity and issues of life and worth. Okay? And so that's how, uh, you know, someone who is pro, uh, say, uh, pro-choice or pro-life, the reason they can be pro-choice is because they look at, a, at, a, at an infant as, as a baby in the womb as just, as just mucus, mucus that's just piled up and that until it takes a breath it's not a human but we know that the Bible tells us that I knew you while you're in your mother's womb that I knew you that I made you that I knit you together that all these things and so when we dehumanize people when we dehumanize individuals it makes it easy not to love it makes it easy to cast them away whether it's dealing with abortion or racism or, or issues with gender or sexual orientation as we minister to those people and reach out to those people if we dehumanize them then we create this justification within ourselves where we don't have to love them and God has not called us to that. All people are created in the image of God and deserving of agape. And so the last thing this morning, why we love, how we agape, why we agape, how we agape, uh, who we agape, who we love, and the last thing this morning, how do we agape? First thing we have to understand as we see needs, as we provide, that there are different types of needs, whether it's spiritual, physical, emotional, that people have needs. And the thing that we have to do is we have to overcome the objections. To figure out how we love our neighbor, we have to overcome the objections. Jonathan Edwards, he's a a, a pastor, preacher, evangelist, theologian from the 1700s, wrote a book called The Duty of Charity. And it's amazing how something written in the 1700s can be so relevant today. Because in this book, The Duty of Charity, what he writes is he writes the objections of the people of his day of why they were not loving their neighbor. Why they were not loving the people around them. Why they would not do that. And the first objection he says, and this is, this is only of three of them and there's a lot more of them. But this is what he says. He says, the first objection is we only help people when they're in dire need. We only help people when they're in dire need. Well, I'm not going to help. They're not, they're not desperate yet. When they get desperate and they really are in need, then I'll help them. And this was his objection to that. He said, this violates the principle of loving our neighbor as ourselves because we come to our own aid long before the situation gets dire. We do for ourselves long before we're desperate. I mean, I, we get a low-grade temp and we take a, a Tylenol for it. You know, we don't, we don't want to hurt. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Martin Luther said this, he said, love for others as love for yourself. If you were able to get into trouble, or if you were to get into trouble or danger, you would be glad to have the love and help of all men. God's called us to that, not to wait till it's a desperate need, but to see a need even at the earliest stages and fill that need, be present for that need, provide whether it's mental, physical, or spiritual, lean into that need. 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. 1 Peter 4, 10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And God has created opportunities in our life where those things can play out. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's in your friendship uh, circles. 
and especially in the local church, that God has established the local church to be able to see need, to feel need, to be helpful to each other. If you don't think there's areas at which you can help us as a church, uh, maybe we haven't communicated enough. We, we need help. There are needs here. There are needs here. We need you. Your families, they need you. There are needs there that they need. Don't wait till it's desperate and dire. Feel those needs now. Your friends, the people around you, they need you. You know, not only does this apply to how we serve and we love the people around us, but it also applies to evangelism and the people that we're communicating the gospel to and sharing Jesus with in our lives. You know, if, if I knew my friends had went out somewhere to eat and had the greatest steak of their life and they didn't tell me about it, I would be pretty upset about that. I like steak. I like a good steak. But if they didn't tell me about it, I would be upset. You know, and if we believe that Jesus Christ saves and that he redeems fallen man and that he provides a life abundant and gives us purpose and love and pours this agape-ness over us, why are we not telling other people about that? Why would we not share that? Why would we not invite people into the space where we partake in it and live our life in a way where we bring that into every day? Why would we do anything less if it's the most valuable? Like we talked about last week, Christianity is either of no importance or it's the absolute most important thing that we'll ever know and experience in our life. The only thing it isn't is moderately important. Our Christian faith cannot be moderately important. It's, it's too big for that. It's either nothing or it's everything. And so the way we approach it cannot be in moderation. It cannot be in moderation. So the second objection is that they brought this trouble on themselves. How many times have you thought that maybe when you've seen somebody? Maybe somebody asking for money, maybe somebody asking for a ride, maybe somebody asking to, and, and listen, I'm not saying don't have, uh, don't have discernment, but I'm just saying in those ways when we have the ability to help, you know, maybe even think more local. We think of people, friends in our life, people around us. We say, hey, look, they're experiencing that because they brought that on themselves. Jonathan Edwards' objection, he says, But Christ relieved the misery that you brought on yourself. Should not we love others as Christ loved us? I'm thankful that God saw me in my destruction, in my ashes. Everything that I did to myself, and he brought me out of that. Everything, God could have looked at me and said, You've done that to yourself. Your life is that way because you chose that route. But God didn't leave us like that. You know, and God calls us to that, that, that we, and for me, I, per, I think about my enemies. You know, I think about the people, and when we say enemies, it's people in opposition to us, you know, or people that, that maybe stand against us. And what does God call us to do in that? There's several scriptures that Jesus says that call us how we should approach and deal with our enemies. Luke 6, 27 and 35, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. But love your, enemy, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. But your love for your enemies, and uh, lend, uh, I'm sorry, I mistyped that. We lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Matthew 5, and 46, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, because your Father in heaven is doing that. 
Your Father in heaven has prayed for the deliverance of his enemies. Your Father in heaven, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that God does not take delight in the destruction of the wicked, that he would have that they would turn from their ways and follow him. God does not celebrate the death of someone who is in rebellion against him. God's prayer, God's intention is for them to come. God said he sent Jesus to save all who would receive him, who would believe in him. That's his intention. That's his desire. And so what God has called us to is that God has called us to forgive and love as God has done. Now there's a difference between trust and forgiveness. You know, the example that I heard this week is, say you invite someone into your home to, to babysit your kids, and then you find out that that person uh, physically abused your children. God's called you to forgive that person. God would call us to forgive that person, but if that person called and asked for their job back, we would say no, because trust has been broken. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is, does not have to be earned. God has called us to forgive, even when maybe their trust has been broken. And the desire being to restore and reconcile that trust. But trust and forgiveness are different. So don't hear me saying that every person who's hurt us, that we just forgive and that everything goes back to normal. That there needs to be some trust that is reestablished. But we are called to forgive. Forgiveness is the the beginning of reconciliation. Trust is the beginning of redemption. Trust is the beginning of making things better. That's what God has called us to do. He's called us to forgive. That is our responsibility. It's not our responsibility because I know a lot of times when we we're called to forgive our enemies, a lot of times we feel like, well, they're getting off the hook easy, right? I want to see them pay for it. I want to see them uh, understand that they've done wrong to me. But God says that is not our responsibility to see their judgment played out. Romans 12, 19 says, take, don't, don't take your own revenge. Vengeance is mine. God says he'll, he'll avenge. He'll, he'll, he'll take vengeance. Don't feel like that's your responsibility. He's called us to forgive. He said that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to forgive. Even if trust isn't there, he's called us to forgive. And a lot of times we look at this forgiveness as weakness, but in reality what this is is this is meekness. This is meekness. Okay, what is meekness? Numbers 12 calls Moses in his time the most meek person alive at that time. Meekness is Submissiveness, it is power under control. It is having the ability to flex power and authority, but choosing to restrain. You know, and a lot of times when someone has hurt us, someone has been our enemy, we have every right to lash out. We have every right to pour on the hurt. But God's called us to a state of meekness. He's called us to restrain that, which we may have the right to do. He's called us to not do it. He's called us to withhold. And the last objection, he says that I can't afford to help the man in need. And so when I say afford, I'm speaking not only of monetary cost, but of momentary cost, not just of of our money, but of our time. That we say, I can't afford. I don't have the time to give to that. I don't have the money to give to that. You know, and we push back against anything that would make me suffer. But to love others biblically may call me to suffer or sacrifice. In reality, it should. You know, because we see this man here in Luke 10. I love that as he approached this man, it said that he felt compassion, that emotionally he was weighted. Emotionally he felt weight for this man. So that caused an uncomfortable 
uh, state with him, uh, 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 challenged him, and that he went and it said that he bound up his wounds, that he poured on oil and wine, and these things were very valuable. So he gave of what he had. He gave, he gave of what he had so he would have less, and then he said he sent him on his own animal. I love that it says that. He wanted to make sure that we understood that he gave the thing he was riding, got off of it, and gave it to some, this other man. He gave his own animal. He made himself uncomfortable. He walked. He put his feet to the ground. Continuing on, it said he brought him to an inn. He took care of him. And the next day, he took two denarii. The two denarius, two days wage. He gave two. I mean, I, I can't even fathom that. Imagine how much money you make in a single day and just giving that to somebody else. That's what he said he did. He took two days wages and gave it to someone else. And then he told, he told the innkeeper, he said, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I mean, an open line of credit. So whatever you do for him, do it and I'll pay for it. Whatever needs to be done to take care of this person who is my sworn enemy. The Samaritan had compassion. He bound him up. He did all these works. He gave for him and he received nothing for it. The Bible does not say one time that this man, this Jewish man got up. He celebrated and thanked the Lord for him and had a big party and gave and all these things. He received nothing and poured out everything of what he had. You know, he had every reason, every reason to push him away, every reason to walk by, but he denied himself Denied maybe even his impulse, and he reacted out of compassion. Remember, he, they hated each other. They hated each other. And he had every reason to not do anything for this person, and he chose to do something. Which brings us to the point where Jesus said, who proved to be a neighbor? Who was neighborly? Not so much about who is, who is the receiver, but who was the giver? Who was the one being neighborly? Because the thing is, if we all approach uh, this situation in a state of, well, I'm the neighbor, I'm in need, who's going who's gonna to give to me? No one's going to be neighborly. No one's going to be given. God hasn't called us to just receive. He's called us to give. He's called us to be neighborly, not to wait and be the neighbor. Be neighborly. And that's why he says here, who proved to be a neighbor? said, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Church, we need mercy for each other. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, It is not irritable. Talking about love, this agape love, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not keep records of wrongs. Another way that's translated, it does not keep records of wrongs. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Love covers a multitude of sin." When we have the love of God within us and then we allow ourselves to apply that love to other people, it covers, it can cover the hurts and the sins and it can help us to forgive. It can help us to move beyond. That's what God has called us to. Love covers sin, but the wicked find motivation from hatred and spite towards others. And in contrast, the righteous are motivated by love and hatred seeks ways to cause trouble, but love looks for ways to forgive. The Bible says that this agape love is the very essence of who God is. And when that love lives in us, that should be what overflows out of us. That should be the desire of our heart to be agape towards someone else, to be neighborly. Why? Because that's what God commanded us. That's what God's called us to. 
There was no logical reason why he should rearrange his plans, spend his money just to help an enemy in need. But mercy does not need reasons. Church, we do not need reasons to be merciful to people around us, whether they agree with us. And listen, neighborly is anybody. We can be neighborly to unbelievers. We can be neighborly to believers. We can be neighborly to people who have hurt us. We can be neighborly to people who have disappointed us. We should be neighborly. That's what he's called us to. That's what makes the church different than anybody else because atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Muslims, all of them can be great. In, in their doctrine as Muslims and Buddhists, they are called to be good, to earn something. They are called to do good, to earn heaven, to earn God's favor, to earn Allah's favor. So they, they are good people too. But what makes Christians different is that we are good even when people aren't good to us. That's what makes us set apart. And it's not because we're earning something. It's because what God's called us to. That's what God's called us to, church. He's called us to love. Pour out, pour out, pour out. And so the question that we ask ourselves, who, not who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? Church, that's my challenge for us. That's my challenge for us in this week. That Who can, who can we be neighborly to? In our family, in our workspace, in this church, in, in our work in the church, being neighborly to the, the body of the church as a whole, using our gifts to fill voids where they are? Who are we being neighborly to and who can we be neighborly to? And if we're grasping for reasons not to help, not to love, not to share with others the gospel or our blessings, we have a problem. And so this morning, I just want to challenge you in that. I want to challenge you to consider not who is my neighbor, but how can I be neighborly? Who can I be neighborly to? And if welling up within me is more trying to figure out more reasons not to help, not to do, not to give, not to love, if there's more of those things coming to my mind than this compassion, desire to do, then begin to pray. Begin to pray this morning, God, fix those things in me. God, fix my heart. God, fix my disdain towards the human race. Because, you know, humans are disappointing. People are disappointing. People hurt us. People just do so much evil to us. But we did so much evil towards God. Every time we sin, we do evil towards God, and he still shows love to us. Who are we to withhold that from anybody within our reach? And so I just, I, I call us to that. I, I ask that you would pray that. This morning, I pray that you would carry that into your week. I pray that as we walk through this Lenten season, that you would eliminate distractions that point you back to yourself and think of ways to delight in God more, to give more of yourself neighborly to those around you. And that, that you would see, I truly believe with all my heart, that if you would lean into these things, you would begin to see the blessings of God manifest in front of you every day and in this church. That's my prayer for us this morning. So let's bow our heads and pray, and we'll be done this morning. Father God, I love you. God, I thank you for who you are. God, I, I just want to, Lord, I just want to challenge us. God, I pray that we would be challenged. Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge and recognize that we are selfish. God, that we think about ourselves so much. And God, in that self-interest, in that selfishness, God, it detracts. God, it draws us away from loving you more. God, and it draws us away from loving our neighbor more. 
God, being neighborly. God, I pray that you would just direct our steps. God, I pray that you would motivate us. God, I pray that you would challenge us as a church. But Lord, as a body of believers, God, that we would be neighborly to those around us. God, that you would eliminate the selfishness within us. God, that you would draw us to people who are hurting around us. God, that you would draw us to people who are in need around us. But maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at, at, at our, in our families. Maybe it's within this church. God, and that, uh, Lord, that you would help us to see physical, mental, emotional needs. God, whatever that need may be, Lord, that you would make that clear to us. God, I pray for that for myself. God, and I pray as individuals here this morning that that would be their prayer. Lord, that you would show them need, that you would use them to fill needs. Be neighborly. Lord, that I pray that we would stop looking for excuses not to be neighborly or trying to rationalize who my neighbor is, Lord, and just be a neighbor. you've made it clear anyone made in the image of God is our neighbor God so I pray that you call that you would direct us to that you would empower us to that Lord that you would bring us to that place to be neighborly God and that neighborly mindset would come from a place of loving you delighting in you feasting on you Monday through Saturday and celebrating it on Sunday God I pray that Sundays would not be our only meal our only spiritual meal, God, I pray we would feast on you throughout the week, God, and I just pray that you just move in us, work in us, God, I pray you would use this church, God, the thing that will make Crosspoint Community Church different, Lord, I pray would just be a strong, burning desire to love you more and love people more, be authentic and honest and bold and clear in who we are and what we want to do for you and with the people that you allow to be around us, God. I pray as a church, we would begin to reach out and love and be neighborly to those around us. Bring them into this space, Lord, and, and, and be challenged to be passionate about you and be passionate about those who are hurting around us. Lord, I pray we see our need. I pray we find that need fulfilled in you. And I pray as we find that fulfillment, we reach out and are neighborly to those around us. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you for who you are. I just ask you to bless uh, our church and bless everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray.